Warning, the research in this podcast may be offensive to some listeners. We discuss the association of evil numbers in Japanese culture, and if this offends you, please click off. There are also spoilers for the novels The Girl from the Well and Frankenstein. Thank you. Enjoy the podcast. We can create a perfect world in our heads. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Monster Investigations. We are your hosts, Gwen Slattery, Alexandria Boss, and Sui Teal. We will be exploring the topic of what defines a monster using Ren Chapico's The Girl from the Well and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In our first half, we will be examining The Girl from the Well and we will be pulling out the true meaning of a monster. The Girl from the Well will be followed by an examination of Frankenstein and the monster that lies within. This is a very special episode of Monster and F and ah, no! This is a very nice. This is a very special episode of Monster Investigations. Not only is it our first episode, but we also had the opportunity to interview none other than Rinchipico himself. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Monster Investigations. Okay. What if there was more to a monster than to what meets the eye? Rin... How do you say Wait, do I have to read this? What if there was more to a monster than to what, it, what meets the eye? Rin Chapiku's The Girl from the Well demonstrates how monsters should be defined by the way they act, not how they look. So what defines a monster? Throughout history, we've seen that thoughts and ideas of society define the identity of a monster. We see this in examples of literature such as the novel The Girl from the Well by Rinch Piku. Despite there being many definitions of monster, we will be going in depth and finding the true meaning of a monster. Now before we get into looking at what defines a monster, let's take a look at Japanese culture to gain a better understanding of the novel at hand. There are many aspects of Japanese culture and folklore in Rin Chapiko's The Girl from the Well. For example, number, numbers are a prominent topic in the novel. Of course, the first number we see is the number nine. In the ghost story, Okiku's Well, Okiku breaks one of her lover's ten decorative plates, leaving nine. This expresses why Okiku hates the number nine so much. In Japan, the number nine is bad luck because it sounds similar to suffering in Japanese. This also shows us why Okiku haunts for eternity, only counting up to nine, eternally suffering. In Japan, this would be known as a restless spirit or a yokai. This can also relate to Rin's second novel in the series, The Suffering. The Smiling Man is considered a monster. Despite the fact that he has a nice appearance and personality, he deceives the people around him into thinking he is kind, but in all reality, he is actually evil. In the novel, Akiku can see children who have been murdered. These children stay on the backs of their murderer because their souls have yet to be released. Akiku counts 17 children that stay with the Smiling Man. This shows that the Smiling Man has killed 17 ch- children, and later in the novel, we see that he does this because it is an act of pleasure for him. Rin's right, he is clean-shaven and handsome. Others people might say he looks friendly and look, and also kindly and well-mannered. As a result of this, we are shown that looks can be deceiving. After all, we can't judge a monster by its appearance. 
Because Okiku was murdered by a man who couldn't take no for an answer, Okiku hunts after men who have murdered innocent children as a way to redeem the lives that these men have ruined. Okiku wishes to bring these killers gruesome death, then... gruesome death than what they brought upon the children as a way to redeem what they had done to influence the children and their families. Okiku helps the world because she gets rid of evil people, not those who are innocent such as children. She pushes to get rid of horrible people who affect children and families. While a smiling man is trying to kill an innocent character, Callie, Okiku is drawn to him so she can kill him. As Okiku is attacking him, she describes the smiling man like the mask coming away so that the murder underneath the gentle, genuine facade is finally looking out. She kills these men as a way to redeem her death as well. And when she is later confronted about passing on or being free, she chooses to stay because she she understands that there are many evil people in the world that won't yield until they are forcibly stopped. In, the, in doing this, Okiku is ridding the world of evil one monster at a time. Okiku saves Tarkin's Kali's and the shrine maiden's life by allowing herself to suffer, although she was given a choice to have her souls released and gain freedoms. As shown in the novel, after the battle between the dark spirits, Chios and the light spirits Okiku. Okiku didn't want to go because she realized she could help the murdered children. But can't you try? Callie's cries. You deserve to go as much as they do, but she does not go. The reason Callie wants Okiku to be free is because she wants Okiku to have a better life and not suffer anymore. Okiku replies to Callie's pleas by saying, There's something else must do. This is referring to Okiku saying that she can't continue to help the murdered children, Callie's and Tarkin's. Especially, Okiku especially wishes to help Tarkin as she understands that he suffered the most since childhood from evil spirits such as Chiyo. Now, let's get into the interview with Rin Chipiku. We found parts of the bodies all over the house, in places you wouldn't think. The funny thing is, the heads have never been found. Hands and feet and things like that. But no heads. What inspired you to write The Girl from the Well? It's a funny story that I'm fond of telling people. I used to work in an old building that looked a lot like it could be the setting of a ghost story. There are, in fact, ghost sightings there that I have that I was involved in, though I suppose that's a story for another day. I worked a lot of overtime and usually clocked out late at night, and the Japanese company above me with its salary men clocked out at the same time. I'm a pale person with long, dark hair and fond of dark clothes, and I tend to wait for the elevator with my head down as I text. So imagine the poor Japanese men's horror when the clanky elevator doors open in this really dark office building with flickering lights and see me standing there. It happened so many times that they got used to me and started calling me Sudoku-chan. Now how would you classify or define a monster? There are two kinds of monsters. 
One is someone who simply looks like they do not belong because of some insignificant reason that society has convinced itself to believe that they do not belong. Often with, some, with something so trite as physical appearance or some perceived abnormality that is less about being dangerous and more about being more about a society's dislike to push back against the current status quo to accommodate. The other kind of monster is just someone who hurts people. Some monsters can be both, but the monsters who hurt people are usually the ones who look the most normal to me. How do you think Okiku would define a monster? She would be all for the latter definition. A monster being someone who hurts. It's why she understands that she can be a monster too, and that this is what's stopping her from thinking she deserves better things in life, even when she's fighting to prevent worse people from hurting others. Is Japanese culture and folklore a big part of your life at all? I wouldn't say it's a big part of my life per se. I look at the country of Japan the same way as other Filipinos do the concept of America or Spain as countries, as colonizers. A lot of the brutality they had done in the Philippines still linger on through the years, and I still remember the anger. My grandfather telling my dad and his siblings to marry anyone but a Japanese man because of the trauma he had gone through. For example, or the comfort women in the Philippines still alive and unable to receive any compensation for what had happened to them. While my DNA analysis apparently tells me I have some minute Japanese blood, which gives rise to troubling questions as how I came to have that Japanese blood, given my ancestors were very much present during the events of the 1930s Nanjing and World War II Manila, I look at this as reclaiming my own history beyond just that. Nowadays, Filipinos are fans of anime and Japanese food, as well as others. Voltes V is huge over there. It was a symbol of the resistance against the Marco di Marco's dictatorship at one point. I grew up with the Japanese ghost stories, and I love watching Japanese shows, mostly Mansai, variety programs nowadays, such as Gaki no, no Susaki. <laughs> Gaki no Sukai. But, like American narratives, this is a way to take back the Japanese narrative, my own way as well, especially in Japan and in my own country where both their versions of nationalism are rising and are just as troubling as in the U.S. Was there a specific goal you had in mind when writing the book? I just really wanted to write something different. I consumed a lot of Western media growing up as well, but I've never really liked any of those gore and slasher movies popular in the U.S., like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It always seemed to me that what should be the key part of those movies, the monster's history, isn't dwelled on as deeply in favor of just the shock and violence factors. Sure, Freddy Krueger slashes victims in dreams, but where did he come from? Why did he start killing? How did he get these powers? It strikes me that, as I am also a forensics fan, that this is a, because American ser serial killers in history are serial killers, just because they are downright evil. 
and that influences the media inspired by them. I wanted to explore more than that. The ghost stories I loved as a kid were always tragic stories. Ghosts who didn't deserve to die were being killed in these tales, often women for daring to push back against the men. And there is often some backstory as to how they came about their fate. And I wanted to write similar things. What was your favorite part of The Girl from the Well? What was your least favorite part? My favorite was probably whenever Okiku goes on a hunt. There's a short visceral thrill in the act, knowing that these fictional assholes deserve what's coming to them. I think my least favorite part was doing the research on one scene that was based on a real life story of a Japanese schoolgirl who had been brutally killed by other students. This is very disturbing information, so I wouldn't recommend anyone reading this. But I did give my fictional murderers the real life killers real names. I gave that character some measure of vengeance and death that she never got to have in life. And it did only reinforce my way of thinking that the real monsters in my books aren't the ghosts. What do you want the reader to gain from reading your book? <laughs> okay. As someone who's always felt like an outsider, I hope my books hit all the right notes with all my other fellow weirds, as well as those who don't feel like they've always belonged, because I see you, and y'all always welcomed at my table. Is there anything you hid in the writing of the book? Tarkin Callie's banter with both books in the duology is really just me and my cousins on any given day. We're all pretty close, just like the two, so it was very easy to write about, write their dialogue, in without much thought. A lot of descriptions of, J of Japan is about my experiences traveling in Japan as well, basically just remembering places I've visited. I often stay at the Kansai region more than I do at the Kanto region. So the train lines I wrote about, etc., and the other places I've been to, Asur Mountain, Himeji Castle are how I experience them and are hopefully as accurate as I remember them. The shrine Karuga and the other shrine maidens live in is only, is the only one that's fictional. If you could edit the book one more time, is there anything at all you would change? A lot of readers usually comment on the endings of my books as being bittersweet, but usually something that's fitting, and I think I agree. The voltage was too high. After looking at the girl from the well, let's look into Frankenstein. In this part of the podcast, we will be discussing the feelings of the creature in, in interview format. We will ask various questions and respond to them as though the creature is responding. How did you get through rejection? I sought out affection from others, those who could not see my appearance from which the root of my rejection had grown. And when all else had failed, I resorted to my studies and books, which I had developed a sincere love for for they could not judge me so much so as the glances of the eyes of the people. If you could change one thing in the world, what do you think that would be? 
The barbarity of man had brought me down. Men could not see into my beating heart. Indeed, to change the heart of those who live by fear is a request far too great. Thus, to change my look would be to gain the admiration from thy people and perhaps my own maker as well. How would you classify or define a monster? A monster is a weary topic, one of which I had often pondered upon before. Should I, one who feels emotion, be accused of being the very demon that haunts thine own dreams based on thine own appearance? Or should one emotionless being whose own thoughts, jury at best, be considered such a dark creature despite his own pleasant countenance? I feel as though a monster would be someone who acts in spite of the rest of his own people, one who gives others a bad reputation. So in reality, I am not the monster, but instead, the people who push me away. Those people, rather the other, more lovely beings, appear to be barbarous and miserable, such as those I had faced in the village. What would you do if you were in your creator's position? Undoubtedly, I feel as though I would respect my own creation with a certain gentleness. I understand the fear of living alone and having to learn by my own side, in which I had been on numerous occasions, unable to understand why humans ran from my countenance. My job in dear Victor's position would watch over and teach my creation, just as a father would do so. It was a man, a human being, who would need an identity. Frankenstein and the girl from the well both represent different variations of what a monster truly is. Both the girl from the well and Frankenstein show us that monsters are people who look fiendish and hurt others. They also show us that monsters and ghosts are not exactly all evil and heartless. These novels reflect society as a whole and how we see things as humans. Thank you for listening to Monster Investigations, and see you guys later. A special thank you to Alexandria Boss, Sui Tiao, Marcia Forward, Rin Chupeku, Amanda Anderson, and Nathan Hutchins for helping us on our journey for creating the Monster Investigations podcast. You are appreciated. <laughs>